Welcome to Judge Movie. I'm Ben Flanagan, the movie judge who judges movies based on whether they've committed crimes against cinema. With me, as always, is the cinema attorney. Hi, I'm Alicia. Um, this week's episode, we're going to be judging Sheffield Dockfest, because Ben, you went to Sheffield Dockfest, right? I did indeed. We're going to get into some of the films that I saw there, some of the highlights and the lowlights. And uh, then we're going to have an interview with Scott Christopherson, who directed The Insufferable Gru. Uh, to wet your whistle, we've got Jack Black in The Insufferable Gru. Greg! Long time no see. What can I do you for? Actually, I'm here about my daughter, Amber. I heard she's been living with you ever since the accident. How's that working out? Yeah, a little rocky, actually. I haven't lived with anybody for a long time, and I haven't seen my daughter for ten years. Give it time. These things take time. Is there anything I can do? Yeah, actually. My daughter said she was out in the woods and saw some guy lurking around, wearing a medieval cloak. Have you heard anything about that? Nope, but there's no crime in wearing a cloak, you know. <laughs> True. So Ben, you just uh, you just been to Sheffield Dockfest. I have, yeah. 2018, yeah. 25th edition. Oh, it's the same age as us. Oh God, <laughs> you're right. I didn't think about that once. Yeah. Um, well, that's weird. Yeah. So uh, tell me about it. How was it? How was it um, Yeah, it was really good. So it was my first time going there and my first time like writing about documentary, uh, which is part of why I was really keen to go because I'm uh, sort of just an excuse to like branch out just like trying to write stuff about like mainstream films. So um, that was cool. And I was exposed to a lot of stuff, as you can imagine, that I wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, it's a really good festival. Um, I would absolutely recommend anyone that's like into movies at all to go, even if you're not into documentaries, there's going to be something there that will like take you by surprise or bore you into submission in a good way or um, piss you off and that's really good. Oh, great. So I want to hear your stats. How many films did you see in how many days? Uh, so I was only there for four of the six days or three and a half really because I was, I was there by the afternoon on Friday and I watched 16 films in that time. So, what's that? I think the first day I must have watched four. Second day I watched five or six. The Sunday was a really slow day for me. I completely lost steam. I only watched two films that day. Oh, man. Um, and one of them was the Nathaniel Dorsky experimental film called The uh, Aboratum Cycle uh, that is basically just shots of plants in uh, California. Um, Oh, man. With zero sound. Well, just the sound of the 16mm projector. Wow. And it's just, like, focus pulling and different light. And I, like, lost my mind. I was like, how long have I been in here? I had no idea. <laughs> no one seemed to move a muscle. Everyone else, even everyone else was just, like, knocked out as well. Or, or they were really into it. Um, so that was a bit of a trip. And then after that, um, I sort of had to have a break because mm -hmm. uh, I'd like realised how much I'd taken in in all that time and had just watched that like just bizarre piece so I didn't watch anything else that day until I saw Black Mother with Geica's score in the evening and that was that like lifted me back up which was good and then the Monday okay. I just did five in a row and went home okay so, cool yeah. that's impressive that's, that's a I was like I'm here I need to yeah. you know I've got, I've got to do this and I've still got access to their they had like a dock player kind of thing Okay. Um, so I've still got access to that until July sometime. 
Oh, so great. I'll catch up on some of them. Like, uh, I didn't see any of the award winners. Okay. Um, so. Was that on purpose? Were you avoiding um, the, uh, the favourites? or? I, my, I Well, there's a lot of the, like, headline ones I did watch, but also, like, um, I saw stuff like Shirkers that was definitely, like, one of the ones they were promoting the most before the festival, and... A lot of people were talking about that. I actually met one of the youth jury people. That was the it was in the youth jury um, category, and he was saying the day after there is no way that Shirkers won't win that because it was just so amazing and it didn't. So quite interested in what happened in their mm. actual discussion. He was saying that everyone was really into it, um, but I can only assume that that was because it's a film that's already been bought by Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably decided to give it to something a little bit more off the beaten path. Okay. Uh, but Shirkers is really good and really worth checking out when it comes to Netflix. That's a, it's a sort of thriller about um, this Singaporean woman who made a film with her friends when she was about 18 that sort of captured a certain Singapore that doesn't exist anymore. And uh, after they finished filming, the person that directed it disappeared with the film. And so 20 years later, she decides to find out what happened to it. And it is one of the most gripping and uh, sort of bizarre uh, psychological and, and trippy movies that I've seen in a really long time it's great oh wow um, that sounds great it's yeah it's, it's so good you, you'll love it <laughs> um, and it's like super aesthetic and cool like mm-hmm. when you see the actual footage it's yeah it's, it's awesome My name is Sandy Tan, and I've made a film about the greatest mystery of my life. Um, so I was catching stuff like that that everyone was talking about, um, but I think really like a lot of what I watched was just based on like where was I at the time, like what was the, where was the nearest screening, when was something that mm-hmm. was just easy to get to. So okay, um, yeah. So I just ended up seeing a lot of variety because of that. That's cool. Okay. So do you have any disappointments? Um, I think one of my disappointments was a British doc called Gun Number Six. It was that probably the only British film I saw while I was there, uh, other than the Mark Cousins Orson Welles one. Um, and it promised to sort of uh, look at Britain's gun crime problem through this uh, Gun Number Six, which is a, a gun that's still in circulation um, and that's been used several times. And it the conceit is that they get um, criminals to or ex-criminals to reenact every time that that gun's been used um, but unfortunately it, those reenactments don't really add anything to your understanding of what they tell you in the interviews mm-hmm. and the they're not crimes that these ex-cons have committed so it's sort of uh, it's it all seems a bit superfluous a bit like um, just for it's all a bit performative rather than actually sort of showing you anything new okay. um, even though I think there is really a space for a documentary about that. Okay. Um, I feel like with documentary, people have a lot of... Some people have a very narrow idea of what documentary can be. Um, Did you find yourself questioning or discovering different ideas about what documentary can be or different... What what was that like? I think people have, like, a notion of documentary as being, like, facts and figures and sort of... uh, trying to teach you how to live in the world in a certain way mm-hmm. and I was worried that a lot of stuff was going to be like that and was going to be really boring because I'm more interested in documentaries that are like 
playing with authorship in some way or have, have got um that are, that are less sort of driven by like social kind of you know kind of social citizenship or anything like mm-hmm. that um i don't really want the stuff that i watch to be something that i could just watch on in school or read the wikipedia page mm-hmm. um and i was pleasantly surprised by how little stuff that i saw that was that mm-hmm. um so a lot of the films that i saw were just kind of like non-narrative like f- almost like photography showcases okay um that had been edited in a certain elliptical way um and that was interesting but i don't know if that's a trend because i don't follow art house documentary closely enough mm-hmm. i don't know if that's just a massive trend or if, if that was something that was like a new space okay um yeah so uh in that case it did, it did challenge me to like actually just to just to not even judge what i was going to see based on what it was about or the bio mm-hmm. like so i think that that was cool okay um and some of the stuff that did seem to be more like narratively driven was less satisfying because of it okay like there's a film called on her shoulders which is about nadia murad who was uh, a survivor of the yazidi genocide in iraq and she was an isis sex slave and she escaped and the film follows her um as she like as she travels the world and tells her story mm-hmm. and at first she has to like relive her trauma again and again when she's like giving interviews to western press which is just like really harrowing stuff and and mm-hmm. shows you how kind of uh like callous the press can be okay um but it sort of it doesn't because the film is trying to is trying to deliver a message it doesn't actually necessarily manage to like get under her skin that much mm-hmm. and that's obviously really difficult to do because I, I don't know if a film that's just following her in a very day sort of fashion would be able to do that mm-hmm. but yeah because it's because it's tied to a certain movement or a certain social justice that it's trying to push it, it hurts the film in a way so it's quite paradoxical that okay that kind of thing what was your biggest surprise i saw on the first night i was there on the friday night i watched a short documentary called watching the detectives which is a slideshow of uh a reddit thread from when the boston bombing happened in 2013 wow and there was a thread that i don't know if you remember this they misidentified the bomber they used cctv footage that was available Mm -hmm. and tried to find the culprit and they they said it was these two guys um is this um the detectives or reddit uh, reddit okay reddit and the detectives okay oh so so the film is literally just one at a time you just see the comments and then you see the image where they'll have drawn like you know weird eyes from people's eyes going look this person looking here and here but on these really blurry cctv Mm -hmm. images and it's like it sort of turns you into david hemmings from blow up or something like Mm -hmm. it's so weird because it and you just sit there in silence for 30 minutes yeah and you just see that entire thing play out in real time okay that's interesting and you sort of you I mean it's basically a night on reddit but mm-hmm. it, I just I found it really effective because it's also like what what a film what should a film be it was interacting with social media in a way that a lot of the films that I saw like didn't they'd sort of gesture towards like modernism or the internet without actually fully engaging with it and, that, and that's why i really like that film that's great yeah who made it that one's directed by chris kennedy and it's canadian 
Um, and I imagine that's the sort of film, because it's only short, they'll end up on Vimeo or something soon, so keep an eye out for that. Okay. That's interesting, um, the idea of social media on screen. Um, I'm curious about that, because I think, you know, in fiction, they're getting, getting better at doing it in less mm. cringy ways, but it's always that struggle to include it in a way that feels real and interesting. Yeah, I mean, like with some of these films that f that I was saying that felt like they were sort of collections of photography mm -hmm. at times like some of them felt like they could have been assembled from YouTube footage or um, other kind of like Instagram stories or that kind of thing and and I think that leaning into that a bit more would have for some films um, could have been helpful so you did your write-up you reported for dirty movies so they have a five splat rating system Five splats as a filthy genius movie, right down to one splat as a thoroughly sanitised movie. Yeah, I think they're just they're trying to uh, highlight more sort of subversive or weird independent movies and stuff that um, will actually like push your push your buttons a bit. Mm -hmm. um, That's cool. Yeah, reminds you of our conversation with Roger, a local at the cinema, and like you were there, right? Uh, no, I think you told me about it. Oh, right. No, no, yeah, so he was talking about how he doesn't like swearing in movies. And I was saying, you know, he finds it very unpleasant. I was saying, like, well, some films want to make you feel uncomfortable. And that's why the swearing is there, you know, to make you hate a character or be scared of a character. And I feel like maybe that idea of, like, a film not trying to be a good time, trying to be unpleasant, was maybe a new idea to him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was trying to, like, with the ratings or whatever I'm not someone that like likes to put like a star rating to stuff mm -hmm. so I was just trying to rate it on how like dirty it was yeah or like how would yeah would someone that's like actively gonna not go to see a like superhero movie respond to this was kind of what I was trying to okay um so what was yeah. the dirtiest movie you saw uh, the dirtiest movie and probably the best film that I saw the whole festival was Hale County This Morning This Evening is directed by Romel Ross it's his first movie um, and he Hale County's uh, this area of Alabama uh, really underprivileged um, predominantly black area um, this guy moved there to be like a gym teacher and just photographed it for over the course of five years and it's just this like stunning portrayal of the of an area um there's very few characters or narratives it's just sort of like tiny slices of life um but just photographed in this really sort of personal way where as soon as you're in a as soon as it cuts to a new scene you're like you're there you're in that space okay. with them. it's so intimate um but completely roughshod it doesn't you know it just it doesn't feel like he if it genuinely feels like he just turned up and that's what happened when he was hanging out with his friends or his family and mm. and it's it's just like amazing it never like it's political without being political or, or making any statements you know okay. it can just cut to a kid in a car with police sirens flashing behind him and you and you see the look on his face and you you know you know the whole context just from that and and it just the way that it took you on that journey was just stunning, I thought. Okay, cool. I guess, you know, it's a film festival. It's there to pick up distributors and make some noise to eventually get released. Um, 
and Netflix, you know, are very much getting in the documentary game. So yeah, what was it like there? So they had a whole Netflix. There was a Netflix room for uh, panels, um, okay. and there was a Netflix logo flashing up before. So they had the, before the movies, they'd have like a rolling thing with all the sponsors, mm-hmm. and Netflix was one of them. So that was quite weird to see the Netflix um, logo okay. coming up. So a we, very strong presence. Yeah, like we, we've joked before about how like Netflix will invent a, a space where everyone can cut, get together and watch Netflix in a public place. Yeah. So it kind of felt like that was already coming true okay. to an extent. Um, and yeah, obviously like Shirkers was a big one that was on the Saturday night and they've already bought that. That's mm-hmm. coming out in November. Um, there must've been some others that were there that Netflix are representing. Okay. So yeah, you could feel their presence. But I think uh, from the feelings that I got from other people that were there or from what I heard at panels and stuff was that people are genu- generally sort of positive about it because documentary as an art form is something that gets so little theatrical distribution mm-hmm. and so little attention in columns that mm-hmm. yeah like put it put it on there as long as it's not being like completely buried in favor of your sort of making a murderer kind of stuff mm-hmm. that we don't like so much um then it's it's a good thing okay so definitely on the accessibility is is worth it yeah i think yeah i'd say so yeah. um um what about the presence of other distributors? Um, you could feel a lot. There was a lot of TV stuff there. Mm-hmm. So there were films from like PBS America or ITV or BBC stuff that had obviously... It's weird because you'd watch it on TV, something like Love Means Nothing, which is a tennis documentary about the chap that coached like Boris Becker and Andre Agassi. It's a really fun little documentary because the guy's just such a character. Mm-hmm. Um not a, I mean it, it's missing something because they didn't manage to get any interviews with Andre Agassi and it's very much about their relationship um, but if I'd just seen that on telly one day I wouldn't have thought of it as a movie but yeah. seeing it in that space it did feel like a film so okay. um, I guess it's good to to kind of build hype around a documentary in that way mm-hmm. so there's a lot of critics a lot of filmmakers yeah. was it very sort of industry focused i think there is a much bigger industry focus uh like but that's what that's what makes it such a um like forward thinking festival in a way because mm-hmm. everyone's like into it that gives it that gives the films a space to be a bit stranger a bit more um you know like having something like hale county in showroom four which is the biggest screen um in in the the uh can't remember the cinema name the sh- yeah it's the showroom mm-hmm. like uh you wouldn't if if that played in any other city that wouldn't be in as big a screen as that and wouldn't have so many like a completely packed out screen mm-hmm. and everyone trying to get a ticket just, just for tickets to date i've done 166 movies in 17 years i've known three people you're not one of them we wanted the dream and no it was it's kind of rejection after rejection his film style is much like guerrilla warfare. Within the last three days, I've written 66 pages. I read it to my mom last night. She felt it was pretty solid. Uh, so you just heard a clip from The Insufferable Gru. Um, tell me a bit more about that, Ben. So The Insufferable Gru was probably the funniest film that I saw at Sheffield Dogfest. It's really awkwardly funny. It's about this American filmmaker called Stephen Gru who's made over 150 homemade blockbuster films with his family and friends. They're all really badly written, horribly acted, and 
fairly offensive. Uh, it sort of puts Tommy was out of shame. Scott Christopherson's the director, and he follows Gru as he attempts to piece together his latest masterpiece, a remake of his own human elf fantasy romance, The Unexpected Race. He's besieged with logistical nightmares, a mutiny, and the possibility of casting Jack Black. Christopherson won the documentary prize at South by Southwest for Peace Officer, and he alternates affection and loathing for his subjects, much like the people around him. Gru is a really difficult figure. He's alternately articulate and closed off, mad and singular, but also compelling and a tireless working class man. I did sit down with Christopherson to talk about the film, his influences, and how much of himself he sees in Gru. So stick around. So Scott, welcome to Judge Movie. Uh, you filmed The Insufferable Guru, premiered last night in the Odeon 3 at Sheffield Dockfest. How do you think it went? The premiere was great. It was um, as good as I could have hoped yeah. or expected. Yeah, I feel really great about it. I think as anyone, as any filmmaker goes into a premiere, I mean, you're always nervous, a bit nervous, right? Um like I was with my first film or any film, and I was really nervous because my subject was there, right? Steve was there, and uh, nervous how he was going to react or how the crowd was going to react to the film and if he was going to be, how he was going to feel about their reaction. But I felt like maybe it was just me telling myself that, but I felt like they were inspired by him. I mean, at least once he came up on stage, that's how that's how I perceived it, like, how does he respond to the, seeing it, like seeing himself presented in a different way? So he had seen the film before right. twice. Like I'd shown it to him, but he'd never seen it with an audience. Yeah. So he loved it. Like I think he really ate it up, like loved seeing it with an audience, loved the energy, you know, and uh, it was a really positive experience for him. Did he ever try and like make any cuts or anything when he saw it before? Was he sort of suggesting things that... Um, when, so when he saw it before, he, there were things that he didn't love, like, you know, he didn't love being called a narcissist. He didn't love us talking about like his income. So there are things he certainly wanted to change, but he being a filmmaker also kind of knew he, that, that we were the ones making the decisions. So he was cool about it. He was like, you know, I know it's your films. So you're not going to change it. Yeah, that respect for you guys. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was kind of like him, yeah. it was this respect as filmmakers. He's like, you know, I know it's your baby. Yeah. And we even we even changed the title. Like it used to be called The Magic of Gru. <laughs> and um, you know, we decided to switch the title to to the Insufferable Gru, which is much, much different. And he was pretty mature about that too. Right. Yeah. On that point about the sort of poverty that his family are going through in it. And that's sort of always there on this, on the sides. It comes into the film. It seemed like you guys were sort of, you were tr actively sort of trying to not be too exploitative, or was was there like a line that you were trying to play with that? Yeah, with his family's income yeah. in particular. Yeah, yeah, that's a tricky situation. I mean, even just you know, you see in the film that we point out how much his his wife makes mm -hmm. right per month, um, and that can be taboo even to talk about that. Uh, but I think it carries like a certain story weight, right? To, to talk about, okay, they make this little amount a month. And, and for me, that carries a, a story purpose, right? That um, it shows how little they make. It shows how Steve's filmmaking really affects them, yeah. right? 
over uh, the 20 year period. And, and you see in the film that he's tried to get jobs like we we go to great lengths to show that he or to show that he tried to become a police officer, tried to become a paramedic, was unsuccessful. And as he says himself in the film, for 12 years, he hasn't really had a steady job. So, yeah, I mean, for us, we didn't want to exploit any anything, um, but we wanted to, we didn't want to sugarcoat his story. We didn't want to sugarcoat his family's financial struggle. I thought it was really interesting how he used clips from his films to illustrate those parts of his life. Um, was that just a case of going through, like, every one of his movies? Was it just a huge like, archiving kind of job to find that, or...? I would say that's the genius of our editor, Rennie Macaulay. You know, he he found those clips. Um, you know, we, we found a few, a few of those, but uh, I think he probably is the one that found those um, clips of him as a police officer. You know, we filmed him being a paramedic. Um, and so, yeah, I mean... We shot about 150 to 200 hours of footage, and um, on top of that, you know, Steve has 200 films. For every film that he makes, he also does a behind-the-scenes documentary that la- that's either longer or as long or longer than the film itself. So that's like a documentary for every film. Yeah. So think crazy. about that, right? And so, you had access to all of those as well. Yes. Yeah. So our editor is sifting through all of that. Yeah. Which is a, a ton of work. When you came into making it, what was your what were you trying to get from Gru? And do you think what what you've you've got is the same sort of? I think when you make a documentary, first of all, you rewrite the film three different times. You kind of have in your head in pre-production what you anticipate happening, and then in production. That, that plan always changes, in my opinion, because life happens, right? And when we started out the film, I wanted to observe Steve as he made his next feature film, and we didn't know which film that was going to be even. And he decided himself it's going to be The Unexpected Race. We thought, we didn't even know if he was going to get Jack Black. It was an idea from the beginning that we thought, oh, Hey, Steve, why don't you get Jack Black, right? That was one of our ideas that we pitched to him. We didn't know Jack Black. We had no idea how to get Jack Black. <clears throat> he was into it because he knew Jack Black was a fan. So, you know, in production, that plan changed because we didn't know what would happen, right? As you see in the film, he eventually gets Jack Black, right? But, um, yeah, it changed. And then in, in post-production... You know, if you have 150 hours of our footage that we shot, plus thousand a thousand hours probably of footage of Steve's work, that's a ton of stuff, right? So you're there's so many possibilities of how to like structure that, right? It's a challenge to really find a structure for how to piece that together. Yeah. Um, so I think I you know, you know me with with along with our team. Yeah, it changed in post-production and, and really that what you saw was was the result of that and I think ended up being what we wanted, you know, for sure. I think that's the best possible pro- end product that we could have hoped for. Yeah, absolutely. 
So with like you're saying that you were sort of pitching the Jack Black thing to to group, yeah. do you, how much do you think that your presence influenced how he acted, or or influenced what actually happened? Because I, I found it interesting how you guys you, you weren't a presence other than you were a physical presence, but not sort of interacting with him too much. Yeah. So I think uh, as a filmmaker, like me and my team. I think inevitably the camera changes people, you know, like people perform for the camera at first. And I think it takes time for them to feel comfortable in front of a camera to like be themselves and to act naturally. I think that was true for Steve. It took time for him to open up, to want to, for him to like really be himself or his wife to, to be herself. So, yeah, I mean, I think, um, could you, could you feel that changing? Were you like there, you know, going right, we're on a point where we're, we're getting them to be sort of more real. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I could feel a change. I could feel that Steve, um, Steve was opening up more and that he was being himself a little bit more front of the camera. I think Steve is interesting because he had acted in so many of his films that he knows how to perform in front of a camera. So maybe in his mind, the line between performing for a documentary camera and a fiction camera was not that different. So it maybe was hard, hard to separate reality from fiction. But, um, you know, there's like a scene in the film where it's like his family at his birthday, right? For me, and that was just me and me filming that, right? And that's this, for me, this poignant scene where it's just an intimate moment that you kind of feel for his family. Like, you know, it's just like these three, or, or his kid, his, his, all of his children are singing happy birthday to their dad with, with his mom there too them kind of letting me into that intimate moment for me was kind of a real moment, right? Um, and then later on, I think it took a good two and a half, three years for Steve to really trust us and really tell us how he felt and thought, um, how he really felt and thought. Yeah. So how often were you showing up? Was it just, was that dictated by him or, or yourselves? Or? It's a great question. So... We started in 2015, like fall of 2015, and we just kind of started off easy just every once in a while. I mean, he lives eight blocks from my house. Right. Just not very far. And we started off with a few interviews with him, and then I would say it was about at least every week for couple years and then during production during pre-production and production during production it was not like you know like while he was shooting non-stop yeah right we were there if he was doing a 14-hour day we were there for 16 to 17 hours we had to be there before like his crew right. showed up and after they left yeah right the documentary crew had to pull longer hours than him um 
So during production, it was like nonstop for us. And then it was usually dictated by us though. Like, but, but we, we would call him and be like, he would kind of know, or we would ask him what's going on. Like we would constantly ask him if anything was happening or like, you know, um, so if stuff was happening, we'd, we'd head over there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you ever like find yourselves on, on this journal sheet, um, on Steve's sheet, like clashing with him in terms of like, you've got two, like two crews there at once. Is that ever sort of? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There were times when it was too, there were too many people. Mm-hmm. Like I sometimes had two, even three camera people. Yeah. Camera persons on on set in addition to his. So sometimes sometimes we were literally in his shot. Yeah. Because we were trying to get coverage from different <laughs> angles. And he got pissed. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know? Uh so I was extra careful, like once he got a little frustrated with us that we were in his shot, I got extra careful not to make the director mad. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, there were times when that happened, but we learned pretty quickly to like stay out of his way. Yeah. Just observe. So we kind of tried to be a bit of a fly on the wall. Right. And during production, right. To kind of just try and observe and shadow. Yeah. It felt like Mason's brothers or something at some points like that, that way you just were there, but you weren't intruding. Yeah. With those really sort of tense moments or where people have been really, he's been very difficult. Did you have like an instinct of like to step in or you just sort of switch that off completely? Yeah. During tense moments, I think over the years, you kind of train yourself to let real moments kind of just happen. You, in a way, embrace silence and you try to not be afraid of silence. Like silence is okay, right? For me, part of that is like a a cinematography principle where it's like you, for on a shot, for example, like you hold a shot for at least 20 seconds, like every shot, right? So it's that same kind of mindset where you'll, you'll sit there and not, not let what they're saying dictate what you do as a filmmaker. You sit back and watch rather than interact. But at times you have to interact, right? If it's going nowhere, but during tense moments, that's kind of like the gold, right? Yeah. Like the, the conflict. You never want to see something bad happen to someone. I mean, that's not like as a human being, but if it's like mini conflicts that you know aren't, it's not like it's going to end in death. It's just like an argument. And have you just got your poker face on, or are you laughing? Or what? Uh, depends on the argument, right? Like, I think I'm, I think I'm. While I'm filming, I'm not laughing out loud. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing on the. If I, if it's funny to me, I'm laughing on the inside. Yeah, I'm like, or I'm gonna laugh about it later. Right. Like I'm focused on shooting, or I'm focused on thinking about the scene. Yeah, I'm definitely. Yeah, I'm definitely in that moment, even if I think it's funny. There are definitely there are definitely times on set and throughout the filmmaking process, 
Like this film was just a ton of fun to make, even though it was long hours and difficult, but it was, you know, mostly we were enjoying each other and laughing and it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. comes across a lot. Yeah. Even if it was, even if there was conflict or if it was tense, it was just like fun. And that was on purpose because I had made a film that won best doc at South by Southwest was on the militarization of police and it was like super draining. So I wanted to make a film that was more lighthearted, that uh, wasn't about people dying. It was like something that was a little more fun. And do you think it was like an easier shoot in that respect or just? Not really. It it was easier in the sense that I thought it was going to be easier. It was easier in the sense that there were other reasons why it was easier. Some of the interpersonal relationships were easier, mm-hmm. but that's, I, I'm not going to go into all that detail because that's, that would take months to talk about. But the, the main reason it was easier was that I wasn't talking to people who were talking, who were talking about losing loved ones or dying, you know, like in the line of fire. And that was the main difference, I would say. Do you see much of yourself in Steam Gray? Yeah, definitely. That's one thing I gleaned from this film is that I'm a filmmaker like him. And a lot of filmmakers or artists who see this movie have come up to me or talked to me and said, I'm not that much different than Steve or like I really relate to Steve or we're only a few degrees different. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Or the ones, at least the ones that are self-aware. Yeah. Right. Like. Maybe there's a bit of narcissism in everybody. Maybe there's um, in every artist, right? Or in every filmmaker, maybe every filmmaker could be at the point where they are in poverty or are not making a lot of money. I have the luxury of like being a full-time professor and having a stable income. But what if I didn't have that? You know, maybe I'm not that much different than Steve. So, yeah, I've... I've definitely empathized with and asked myself, well, what, what are my films really any better than Steve's? Right. I've only made two feature length films. I mean, I've made a bunch of short films, but what makes a good film, you know, like how do you define success? How do you, um, determine, uh, what's good, what's bad, what's talent, who's talented, who's not talented, you know, what's good to watch, what's not, all yeah, kinds of cool. stuff. Yes, this film is really interesting. Yeah. There was a line like early on where um, he said something like, um, this is me and then I put on the mask and I cannot be mean. That's what doing the films does. It was in the sort of first 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of films that I've noticed have the same sort of theme in about having some sort of obsession or something that, that takes you out of yourself. And I just wondered if you, if there was a reason that you think that in this like moment that that's, that's something that keeps coming up in documentaries this year. Uh, I see, I see. Um, you know, Steve, maybe film, certainly film is like an escape, right? And I think for a lot of film films or filmmakers, like, you know, separating reality from fiction, I think there can be a lot of blurred lines. 
Um, I think that's the case for Steve. Right, he doesn't always maybe separate the two. Um, or, you know, creates these interesting, like, as he says, you know, story worlds, right? Yeah. Um, and all thing, all, all types of things can be wrapped into that, you know, be it childhood trauma or divorce or whatever, you know, there's reasons why we turn to escapism or wanting to put on a mask so that we um, cannot confront our realities. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, because I watched it right after Generation Wealth. I was like, so did I. Oh, right, we, went, yeah. we went to the same, same series of stuff, yeah. Yeah. I was like, these are like weird flip sides of each other. So it was interesting how they programmed that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So, so, check that out. so do you have another film sort of in production? Yeah. Now, I have a couple films. So I have one film of this basketball player named Jimmer Fredette, who was like, he was a draft pick in the NBA, and then he, be, he couldn't do that well in the NBA, and then he became this Chinese basketball superstar. His nickname's the God of Loneliness, which means he's like alone at the top. So we followed him in China for like a year, playing for the Shanghai Sharks. And then I'm doing a series where we've been following or shooting this series about this um, American college student who in 2004 was abducted by North Korea and was supposedly like a tutor to Kim Jong-un and is, according to sources, like still alive and is married and has two kids um, and is not on the list of, of people who are being released. Like, um, and his family still thinks he's alive and uh, wants him to be released. So we've been following this story in the family for like three years. Great, yeah. It's a pretty wild story. Um, so are you going sort of, so you'd be with Stephen and this band, is that how that would work? Or? The North Korea story? Yeah. Exactly. So I guess as a doc filmmaker, you're kind of always having a lot of irons in the fire, right? Right, yeah. I mean, because it can be a bit risky. You don't quite know what's going to happen. You're trying to follow multiple stories. Um, and, yeah, I'm just constantly, like, looking for stories. Yeah. You know, and following. If I, if I think there's a good story I'm, and I'm going to invest my time into that story. Right. So, yeah, like, even while I've been here, I'm talking to my producer about that story you're like as a, as a documentary maker do you feel the weight of like of, of the sort of legacy of, of great documentaries like with Drew I was feeling like uh, there was stuff like American Movie or even A House of Darkness right yeah so totally. are you thinking about that when you're filming it or is it are you just sort of in the moment and later on you sort of feel like oh this could be in the same sort of yeah you're well educated that's cool um I wouldn't say, 
I mean, as, as a, like, I have an MFA in cinema, and so I'm a doc film professor, and I love those films, and I teach those films, like, I teach doc history and theory, and I have those films in the back of my mind. Like, American Movie was a big inspiration for me in this. And I actually met and hung out with Mark Borchardt and Chris Smith. Mark was the main character in American Movie, right? At, in 2016 in New York, like at Cinema Eye Honors, which is like the nonfiction awards for a documentary. So that was cool, like, as I was starting this project, like, meet and hang out with and talk with them. I don't know if I really feel like any amount of weight. I mean, I'm not really at like any name in documentary and I feel like it's cool that it would be cool if somehow this film was in any way compared to American movie. That would be cool. I don't feel like any pressure, you know, but I think I have a ton of respect for that film and that film's amazing and, you know, Hearts of Darkness, right, with Coppola is also amazing and um, but you're not like actively in sort of opposition to that or, or <laughs> trying to fit yourself with that. No, I, I feel like I I more feel like also I mean that said with, with American movie, I also was I didn't want to in any way copy that film, right? Like I had a ton of respect for it. I love it. I was inspired by it, but I didn't want to watch it a ton. Yeah. Because I didn't want to in any way be influenced by it creatively. Like, I wanted this to just be its own thing. You know, I wanted to think my own way, create this film however it wanted to be created, and not be heavily influenced by American movie while still, like, you know, loving it. I mean, um, so, you know, like, I, I love... Alan David Maisel's. I mean, I interned for Ross McElwee, who did Sherman's March, and he's a great, he's a huge influence on my work. You know, like, he kind of gave me my start in documentary. In that sense, I have a ton of respect for, like, those pioneers, like Ed Pincus, uh, Ricky Leacock, um, like, the I liked talking about, this is kind of funny, like uh, Robert Flaherty, who did Nanook. I think him and Ricky, he taught and kind of trained Ricky Leacock. Ricky Leacock kind of worked with Ross McElwee. Ross McElwee, I interned for, right? So it's like this short chain to Robert Flaherty, which is pretty sweet. Which is pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in no way comparing myself <laughs> to those people, but... I like to think, oh, it's not that short of a connection to what you might call as the first documentary, right? Yeah. With Nanook. Um, so I don't feel weight, but I also, I feel more uh, respect and gratitude than anything. So, thanks to Scott Christopherson for that great interview. That concludes episode two of Judge Movie. Sheffield Docfest does take place every June and it's really worthwhile visiting next year. Uh, yes, a great way to get to these festivals for free is volunteering. Um, I love volunteering and it's definitely a great way to see a lot of the movies 
that are showing there and get to know different kinds of people and like-minded people. So I'd recommend that. You can find me at pesh underscore lives on Twitter. Uh, I'm Alicia with two L's. Um, and for Judge Movie, where can you find us? Judge Movie's on Instagram at Judge Movie Pod, and it's the same on Twitter, Judge Movie Pod. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if we're still looking for an intern, <laughs> if you wanna you wanna hop on board and be a court clerk. Um, so next week we're going to be talking about post horror and hereditary and sort of the discussion around horror at the moment, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. So if you wanna send us some comments or anything you think about the term post horror and hereditary, we'd love that. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And to all the bad movies out there, your judgment day is coming. That'll do. That'll grow.